particularly have a passage for you to go to today where um, on a uh, on a topic uh, and um, one that I uh, told you that we were going to address every once in a while I have people and they ask me questions pastor what about all of those at about Christ about about Christmas about uh, Easter about holidays and um, about how uh, they're pagan and how they're wicked and um, what do we do with that? Um, should we be celebrating these holidays? And um, how should we be celebrating these holidays? And um, it's been several years since I've spoken on this topic, and I wanted to bubble it up this year, this topic that I would like to consider today, the Christian holidays. To the extent that our time allows us, this message might go a little long today. Uh, if you have to walk out at any point, I, uh, I don't... Um, I don't I'm not offended, um, as it might go a little bit long today, but um, I'm hoping to be able to get through it in a timely manner. And as I say these things, my, my desire this morning is not to uh, convince you of anything uh, necessarily. It is not to tell you what you need to believe. Uh, there's, I, I hope that the spirit of my preaching is never uh, in that sort of a vein where um, uh, you feel as though you have to uh, agree with me. You are always free to disagree with me and to disagree um, with the direction which the church goes, uh, and, and of course, as it relates to these holidays, it's no different. Uh, but the point of the sermon is not necessarily to convince, uh, only rather to provide a, a semi-comprehensive and God willing, a balanced perspective, which will then give you each the tools necessary to operate in the context of freedom within your own conscience as it relates to this topic of Christian holidays. Uh, what we don't want is people operating under some uh, guilt or um, frustration that what they are doing might be wrong or, or, or ought to be done, though they don't feel as though they should, or uh, some guilt that is falsely applied that causes anyone to deny uh, themselves of those freedoms which they desire to enjoy in the Lord or, or those freedoms to, uh, re re to, to step away from that which they believe they ought to in the Lord. If with all the facts uh, you know on hand, you cannot in good conscience observe a holiday, then by all means don't. And if you can, then do it. As the scriptures say, we'll talk about this later, happy is he that is not condemned or condemneth not himself in that thing which the Lord allows. So we're going to begin with some history. And then after we talk through some history, then we're going to talk through some principles. And after we talk through principles, then we're going to talk through doctrine. And we'll think through all of these things together. The history of Christmas. So we'll begin with Christmas. We'll be talking about holidays more generally. We will talk about Easter and Lent as well. But we'll begin with Christmas as Christmas is uh, kind of the focal point. And usually uh, these things don't come up as much around the time of resurrection. Uh, they significantly come up around the time of Chris Christmas more. So the history of Christian holidays is one that is checkered with claims of paganism and understandably so because the history of Christian holidays is strongly connected to the history of the Roman Catholic Church which has for most of its long and checkered history been littered with paganism if not been outright pagan at times. We mentioned this, uh, I mentioned this not too long ago on a Sunday evening as we talked about uh, the nature of Jesus uh, saying, who are my brethren, who is my mother, my, my brothers, uh, my, my sister. And we talked a little bit about the idea of Mary and how the Roman Catholic Church looks at Mary. We also talked about this earlier in Genesis as we talked about the mother-child cult. And if, you, if you, you aren't familiar with 
idea as I present it. Uh, you might be a little bit on the back foot today as we talk through a few of these things because I don't have time to rehash all of it today. Um, but I, uh, uh, my, my message that I preached in Genesis was around that time of Babel when we talked about Babel. And you can go back and listen to that. I've also preached it in my Revelation series. And then I did talk about Owen Mark, the, the last as we talked through the idea of um, Jesus and his mother, Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. Now, most of the thinking as it relates to the pagan connections uh, in the minds of those who do the study are derived from the work of a man named Alexander Hislop, who wrote a book in 1916 uh, that took many of the historical concerns related to paganism and specifically to the Roman Catholic Church, and he combined them with a fairly well-documented book, Babylons, uh, and uh, uh, it's also called uh, Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife. So much of what I'm going to summarize today is derived from the compilation of his research, though it is important to note that various Christian concerns about Christian holidays um, have been around for a long time. We'll even talk about that in the history. Christian concerns about supposed Christian holidays well predates the 1900s. The controversy is also not about Christmas, as I've said. Controversy touched almost every Christian holiday um, because historically every Christian holiday uh, uh, comes from a mixture of Roman Catholic traditions as well as uh, various uh, traditions found in, in, in certain cultures, with the notable exception of Thanksgiving, which is uniquely um, American and uniquely Protestant in nature. So in the realm of modern Christian observance, the controversy would naturally touch Chris Christmas and Easter the most, uh, and those are almost universally observed, uh, at least here in America. We also touch today on Lent, which is very po uh, popular in this area due to the uh, Catholic and Lutheran nature of the area within which we find ourselves. One final note before we get going on that history. <clears throat> it's important as well to understand that there's absolutely no consensus not just about uh, the nature of the holidays, but about all of the history that I'm going to tell you about. Holidays are unique things in that they are cultural. And cultures, over time, change. They adapt. They transform through the years. As cultures and times have changed, so too have holidays. Their origins are about as cryptic as anything else in the fog of history. We can pull bits and pieces, always looking at what tradition predates what other tradition. But at the end of the day, we do have a little bit, when we're, when we're trying to assess holidays, there is always a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem. Which came first? Did the pagan stuff derive as a perversion of what Christians did in good conscience? Or did the Christian stuff derive from what the pagans did before them? This is in some ways impossible. So as I mentioned some of these things, they will stand in direct contradiction to other historians and their take on the issue, and this really might in itself help you come to some conclusions as to whether or not you should observe the holidays and to what extent you should observe them in your own lives. As I teach some of this, it's going to be somewhat dependent upon, as I said, your familiarity with some of the other things uh, that I have talked about, the mother-child cult and such. Uh, and if you aren't familiar, some of that may make a little bit less sense to you, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. So let's get to it. Let's talk about Christmas. The history that concerns most people in relation to Christmas is um, the ideas surrounding the pagan origins of such. The word Yule, 
as we think of the idea of the Yuletide season or the Yule log as various origins, but the most contentious of those is that it connects to the Chaldean word for infant or little child. Thus, in pagan ritual, Yule Day was on the 25th of December and was the time when the pagans would celebrate the birth of the son of the Queen of Heaven. Again, we've talked about that. We've talked about the idea of the Queen of Heaven and and its uh, perversion and its danger and its paganism over the years. Do take note that the winter solstice is not on December 25th, as some people claim, but before. Um, Those that put the solstice on the 25th are being somewhat disingenuous with their dating systems. But history does perhaps bear out that on December 25th, this was an important day in many pagan cultures as a day to signify the birth of any number of gods connected to the mother-child cult, whether that be Nimrod and Tammuz Cyrus or Horus or Mithras or Adonis, all of them had this legendary idea that was rooted somewhat in the date of December 25th. Now, certain historians claim that this Yule log was then brought into the house on December 24th, and it became the foundation of the fire that would then represent the cutting down of Nimrod, his death, that would then uh, lead to the birth of Tammuz, which would be the son of the mother, Semiramis, who was then the queen of heaven with her son, and thus lead us into that mother-child cult. They would also then bring in an evergreen tree to represent the expectation that Nimrod would come back from the dead. Evergreen, of course, being that idea of perpetual life. The evergreen tree is the tree that does not die in the winter. It's the tree that stays green in the winter, and so there is the idea of perpetual life. That's the symbolism of the evergreen. To this end, then, we see certain aspects of the holiday, as it has been come to be observed, that we can connect two things which are quite pagan. In Roman culture, the important feast of Saturnalia was from December 17th to December 21st. Then on December 22nd, there was what was called the Feast of Dolls, where gifts were given to children. Then on the 25th was this day, Invicti Solis, the birthday of the unconquered son, in honor of the mother-child cult's God's birth. All of this is, of course, concerning. But then we also see that Christian history tempers these concerns a bit. Christmas, of course, is literally short for Christ Mass, which according to the Catholic Church was founded in 1038 AD. Christmas was not among the Christians' early feasts, not being listed by Arrhenius, not being listed by Tertullian in their list of Christian feasts. In fact, the early church fathers, as they are called, regularly mocked the idea, not just of celebrating uh, the birth of some god or or, or some prominent person, but they actually mocked the idea of birthdays at all. Uh, They did not like the idea of celebrating birthdays, either of people or certainly the pagan practice of celebrating the birthdays of their gods. The earliest record that we have of the idea of interest in the birth of Christ in church history was around 200 AD, as those of you that were here for that message uh, in Mark, just a couple weeks ago, no. 200 AD was before the, the, the compromise within the church began, before what we would certainly see to be the formal Roman Catholic Church. That was when the church was still quite united, and they would call themselves the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, not in the Roman Catholic sense, but significantly more simply in the sense of a church that was attempting to stay unified, though they were a church that was broadly scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So in 200 AD, Clement of Alexandria assigned the birth of Jesus around May 20th. And this was the first that we find historically of uh, any sort of interest in when it was that Jesus 
Jesus was born. Uh, others at the time uh, did not think it was in around May 20th. They bumped it back a month, depending on calculations, and they uh, calculated it to be somewhere around April 20th. However, many at this time, uh, Clement tells us, seem to be celebrating the nativity along with a celebration of Jesus' baptism. And historically, they believe Jesus' baptism was uh, in early January. So uh, most Christians at the time, it would seem, according to Clement, were celebrating Jesus' birth along with his baptism, and that would have been somewhere around January 6th. Among Armenian Christians, they still only celebrate one festival, and that's the nativity and baptism on January 6th. Now, by the mid-300s, there was a call in the church to separate the baptism of Jesus from the nativity of Jesus, with the Feast of the Nativity being moved back a little bit, and that being to December 25th. And the reason why it was moved back at that time was because there was another uh, general idea, general celebration of uh, believing that Mary was conceived with the Holy Ghost on March 25th. And in that, they believe that March 25th was the day of her conception. Then they add nine months to that, and you get December 25th. And so they celebrated on December 25th, exactly nine months after they celebrated the idea of the Holy Ghost uh, uh, conceiving with Mary and, and Mary being great with child. Uh, so by these records... The explanation for why December 25th is chosen is not necessarily because uh, Christians were uh, deeply compromised and invested in Saturnalia or invested in uh, uh, the, the mother-child cult, but rather they had historical reasons of which there was uh, some measure of debate, measure of debate even as to whether or not they should have a feast uh, surrounding the nativity of Jesus. But one way or another, we certainly see some valid historical explanations as to why it was December 25th was chosen as the day where the church would celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But there's more. We generally regard the church's greatest compromises to have begun when Christianity was legalized by Emperor Constantine in 313 AD at uh, the Edict of Milan. Constantine proclaimed himself to be a Christian, and of course, because their emperor was a Christian, pagans flocked to join the church, because, of course, their emperor was a Christian, so they're going to become one, too. And the church began to become increasingly political. It merged with both pagan ritual and with political power, and it became more and more like the Roman Catholic Church that we know of, of history. Of course, we see the break with uh, the Eastern Empire and recognizing the Eastern Orthodox Church and, and, and its various issues as well. But even before that time, there was an unhealthy merging of Greek and Roman pagan mysticism with, and deism with the concept of Jesus Christ. And this should not surprise us, as Satan has always sought to bring paganism as close to Christianity as possible. And then the pagans look like Christ. And they say, look, we are just like you, and then we find compromise in the church. So as early as the late 100s AD, Tertullian can be read rebuking those in the church who merged worship of Christ with worship of these Mithras and these, these mother-child cult gods. The battle was particularly strong in the late 300s and early 400s, where we can read of both Augustine and Pope Leo I rebuking those who sought to equate Jesus Christ with the solar cult. Now, unfortunately, none of this was helped by them moving the date of the nativity, the observation, to December 25th, the day when the Romans would celebrate that, that natalis invicti, the birth of the sun god Mithras. But do take note of this, that while the date was the same, 
It is not as if the church was simply happily merging these holidays. There was a great deal of controversy. There was a great deal of, of effort that was put into distinguishing of setting the difference between the birth of Jesus and the birth of these other gods and the celebrations therein. Also take note that the birth of Jesus was not a major holiday at that time. It was not one of the big ones. It is one of the big ones today. It was not one of the big ones at that time. So the controversy was not as dramatic and as grand because it was a minor holiday at the time. So the church was openly rebuking those who sought to merge these things. To this end, I believe that we can have some confidence that the date of Jesus' birth is not necessarily mired in wrong intentions. So that's the idea of Christmas as it relates to the history and its connections to paganism. Let's talk a little bit then about Lent and Easter. Much the same can be said about Lent and Easter. Easter, as a name, is certainly not Christian in origin, as the Christians would have regarded what would be the Passover and uh, certainly the resurrection. The name Easter is linked to any number of pagan gods, uh, the old Babylonian uh, and, and Sumerian gods of Ishtar and Astarte. Uh, this was the goddess of fertility, which is actually where you get the connection to uh, rabbits and eggs and, and those sorts of fertility symbolism, uh, which is indeed connected very much significantly more to paganism than it is to anything else. Easter and Passover had characteristically been two entirely different holidays that did take place at the same time of year. Now, in Catholicism and Lutheranism, the 40 days prior to that resurrection day uh, is observed uh, as Lent, and it's defined by weeping and mourning and self-sacrifice. In the liturgical denominations, this is connected strongly. They connect this strongly to the 40 days that Jesus was fasting in the wilderness prior to the temptations that would take place in the wilderness. However, uh, there's a very tenuous link between those 40 days of fasting and anything having to do with the actual resurrection itself. The actual practice is significantly closer to pagan ritual than Bible doctrine. So whereas we might look at Christmas and say, uh, yes, we can see where the pagan things were happening around the same time, and yet it does appear as though the church was actually doing something valid uh, that was simply uh, parallel to what was happening in the culture that was around them, and then there was a natural merging as uh, after the Edict of Milan, Constantine and such, um, there would have been a natural merging because a bunch of pagans came into the church because they were afraid if they didn't, their emperor would be angry at them. Uh, we don't see that same distinction with Lent, necessarily. The actual practice has very little uh, historical connection to anything biblical, and it has a significantly higher historical connection to that which is pagan. In the pagan mother-child cult practice, as we've talked about before, uh, there was the idea of weeping for Tammuz. Uh, you can actually read about this in Jeremiah. You can read about this as well in Ezekiel. And this idea of weeping for Tammuz was days of mourning for, a, for, for Tammuz who would die and then would resurrect. Tammuz was the son of Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod in Babel, according to tradition and history, who claimed that Tammuz was the resurrection of his father Nimrod. And so was both God and the Son of God, thus claiming him to be the great Messiah. It's obviously a perversion of God's promises in regard to the true Messiah that was realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned already the general recognition of the birth of this pagan God was around that same time, December 25th, which was perhaps joined by a remembrance of his untimely death through that Yule log. 
And the 40 days of weeping for Tammuz that would then be done in the spring would represent a time of fasting and of sorrow, which would culminate in the emergence of spring. And this was very, very common among uh, many pagan religions uh, that they regarded the time of winter as the time when their god either died or would fall asleep. And then they would go through ritualistic practices just before spring as a means by which to appeal to the gods to resurrect him or to wake him up. And they would recognize the budding in the spring connecting to the awakening of their god or the resurrection of their god. And thus, of course, spring would be life and fertility and all of these things. Thus, making the placing of Lent in the 40 days prior to the celebration of Jesus' resurrection highly suspect as it relates to a sort of observance. Significantly more reflective of what the pagans would do as a means by which to mourn unto the resurrection of their God than necessarily anything that we find connected to the Bible and Christianity. So, Lent bears far more resemblance in timing and in figure to the idea of Tammuz and his resurrection than it does necessarily to Jesus and his days in the wilderness or his resurrection. Uh, the 40 days is what they would use to weep for their gods in these pagan cultures. And of course, 40 being a significant number, both as in history. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, though our church is happy to celebrate Christmas and our church is happy to celebrate the resurrection, although you will never hear me talk about it as Easter um, in the church, um, we don't do Lent uh, because Lent does not necessarily have, a, it, its connection is significantly more to the liturgical denominations and their traditions than it is to anything necessarily biblical. Easter, resurrection, is a little different, though, than the idea of Lent. Of any holiday on the Christian calendar, the Passover is the one which is most natural and obvious. Christians have not characteristically observed the Old Testament Jewish feasts throughout their generations, but the merging of the Passover feast with the reality of the resurrection came quite naturally to the early church. In fact, each of the primary Jewish holidays has tremendous Christian implications. If you've ever, ever done a study on the, the prophetic implications of those Old Testament Jewish holidays, um, there's certainly appropriate applications to them within the Christian world. That being said, as I said, the name Easter and associations with rabbits and eggs and fertility and such, um, those connections are quite pagan and uh, in their historical roots. Now, history tells us then that almost every Christian holiday was outlawed in the Americas within the Puritan colonies. And this is something else that's very important to understand, that as far as those uh, in the Americas among the Puritan colonies, they outlawed most of these Christian holidays. And for, in some places, for, for the better part of 100 years, these holidays were actually outlawed in the Americas. Most Puritans, Anabaptists, Quakers, Congregationalists, saw the holidays as an abomination with the liturgical denominations, Anglicans, Catholics, Lutherans, and Dutch Reformed, uh, regularly being willing to celebrate them. Beyond just the puritanical zeal, um, and the Puritans had a zeal for a lot of things, um, and, and were, were extremely um, um, cut down in, in the manner of, of ritual, of any sort of a ritual, it was, it was kind of a thing for them. Um, along with that, we recognize that in England at the time, uh, there was celebrations surrounding the time of Christmas, but they were not very Christian in character. Of course, then you had the Puritan zeal to reject anything that was associated with the Roman Catholic Church. And throughout the 1600s and 1700s, they regarded Christmas and Lent and Easter, among others, as being intrinsically pagan in origin. 
Christmas in particular was not very popular. Uh, it, was, it was outlawed among the Puritans, and it was actually not very popular at that time, the 1600s and 1700s, in the, in the Catholic world as well. Catholics were not, it was not a very popular idea. It was, however, very popular in secular culture. Uh, that time, around December 25th, was a time in England where people got days off of work. Um, there was a, a lip service to the observance of Christ's birth. That nativity idea was still there, but it was generally regarded as a deeply pagan holiday, filled with all number of evil and excesses, heavy drinking, sexual liberties, debaucheries of every sort. Uh, that was the general character of the holiday at the time of the Puritans. To this end, it was not surprising that Christians saw it in a very negative light and it was banned in those places where church-state system were still doing their thing and, and certainly you know, before we, we see um, uh, the, the Puritans kind of merge with many other different groups in the colonies. It was actually this act by the Puritans, this act of outlawing it in the colonies, that caused the Catholic Church to put more emphasis upon the holiday. It was not a big holiday in the Catholic Church until they saw that the anti-Catholics uh, were, were, were opposed to it deeply, and then the Catholic Church felt as though they should lean into it more, and indeed they did lean into it more, and it worked out very well because the birth of Jesus naturally means they get to elevate Mary, which was kind of a big thing and still is to the Roman Catholics. But though the Puritans had outlawed it, of course, it was still a very popular holiday in England. And it just so happens that the majority of the people that were living in the United States happened to be Englishmen. And so we did find that there was still a, a, a heritage that found its way to America around this time of year. And slowly but surely, the observance found its way back into culture. And by the late 1700s and early 1800s, it had found its way back into the general mainstream as a time of year for holidays. Now, all this being said, on the other side of this controversy, something had happened in Christmas. All of the controversy, all of the paganism, all of the secularism, all of the, 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 the Roman Catholic push, the Puritans outlawing it, all of that happens, but then something happens. It is something that is important. The Puritan hostility toward the character of the day actually changed the day itself. And with a renewed interest in Christ, brought into the liturgical denominations because of the controversy itself, Christmas purged of its debauchery and of its evil and was entirely repurposed to be a day that was significantly more in line with what we have come to see Christmas to mean. Time of generosity, a time of goodwill, a time of peace, a time of family, and a time focused upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And what that leaves us then is a holiday that, for the past 200 years or so, looks very different from anything that it has ever looked like in the history of the church or in the history of paganism. And this is important because while it bears the same name as the historic Catholic observance, the Christ Mass, and it bears the same name, uh, the, the same dates as various historical pagan and secular ideas, and it may even bear some of those same symbols, at least particularly in the secular realm. What it doesn't bear is the same character. And this is interesting. Since the purge of the holiday in the 16 and 1700s, what it doesn't bear is the meaning, either of the Roman Catholic paganism or of the secular paganism. Now, this history being established, if only simplistically and in brief, before we apply doctrine to the question, let's add a few more considerations. 
The first is about holidays in general. And I hope you're thinking along with me on this. I hope that you're thinking through this with me. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here for you to think through these facts with me here. And there are two thoughts I want to give about holidays in general. First, as it relates to the Christian church. There's absolutely no command in the scriptures to observe any holiday of any sort. Historically, we know that Christians gathered on the first day of the week, and Paul even mentions uh, that at least once in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, that they gathered on the first day of the week, but there's no commandment for it to be so. Likewise, we know that there's no New Testament, New Testament command to observe any holiday or feast, though Paul did, did acknowledge in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 27, that Christians might go to secular feasts and secular holidays so much so that he gives instruction as to what they should do if they are presented with a scenario where meat is placed before them that has been dedicated to idols because they're at a secular feast, a secular celebration of some sort. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But just because the Bible doesn't command something does not imply that the Bible outlaws it. Remember, just because something is not um, biblically commanded, it does not make it unbiblical. does not make it anti-biblical. And quite the opposite, in fact, as it relates to holidays. We know that Jewish Christians celebrated the Jewish holidays. They continued to celebrate the feast even after their conversion. In fact, many even still kept the law as unto the Lord, which led to the great controversy in Acts chapter 15, uh, where Paul had to go and he had to advocate uh, for grace uh, before the Jerusalem council. But what about the Gentiles? Imagine what it must have been like for a Gentile growing up having certain celebrations and feasts and certainly certain of them being abject pagans so that when they got saved, uh, they realized that those, those uh, things could no longer be, be uh, exercised anymore. Those feasts could no longer be enjoyed. Considering that there was no command from the apostles in relation to keeping or not keeping holidays, however, which would be more natural? Would a person who is a Gentile, who has fond connections to certain days, certain ones have to be thrown out because they're only in, in relation to the of their gods, would they just throw out holidays altogether? Would they subsume the Jewish holidays, which they don't really have any historical connection to, or would they make feasts around other days, such as we already saw in history? Feasts surrounding Jesus' nativity. Feasts surrounding the, 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 the Holy Ghost conceiving with Mary. Feasts surrounding uh, uh, the, the various aspects, Jesus' baptism. The various aspects of things which were important to them. And if they were going to do such a thing and they were going to celebrate these feasts at various times of the years, would it make sense for them to uh, simply pull out of whole cloth a time or would it make sense to do it in a time where they would be able to celebrate because the rest of their culture was celebrating something as well? To where it makes it significantly easier and more convenient for them to be able to step into a celebration because their culture has stepped into a celebration and they can have time off of work and they can have time with family or, or maybe they could even, in a sense, hide their celebration prior to when Christianity was legalized in the empire. For them to completely throw out their heritage and assume the Feast of the Jews, which uh, many of them were, were despised among the Jews still, because they were Christians, or to simply take the days which they're familiar with to reject the pagan stuff and to focus upon that which is profitable and worthy of focus, maybe they could do that. That would make sense. The second concept I want to touch on is the idea of memorials themselves. 
while the only memorial given in the New Testament to be observed, explicitly called to be observed, would be the Lord's Table, which churches observe in our culture anywhere from once per week uh, to once per month to a few times per year. We at Legacy Baptist Church observe it the first Sunday night of every month. The Old Testament sets a very strong foundation for the importance of memorials, doesn't it? God regularly commanded the nation of Israel to build altars as memorials of some great thing that the Lord had done in the land. God encouraged his people to set up physical markers to remember spiritually important things because humans are prone to forget. And even when we don't forget, we're prone to misinterpret. Just look at all the memorials that ignorant people around the world, around the country, have been tearing down, attempting to strip from our consciences important historical ties so that we won't remember. It's not a bad thing to have a memorial to some bad thing that happened. It's important to remember those bad things, just as it's important to remember the good things. We need memorials, because if we don't have memorials, we're prone to forget. If something is not built at the time, that then we're able to carry into the generations that come, it's very easy for us to cast aside the lessons of the past, to cast aside our roots in the past, to the people of the past. I mean, we even do this individually, don't we? You have an heirloom from your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. It's just a thing, an old thing. But it's not just an old thing. It is a connection. And memorials are connections. And they are, in fact, important. Several times in the Old Testament, the nations commanded not to remove the ancient landmarks. Those things which are set up to show one person's land ended and where another person's land began because those landmarks were important as it related not just to the idea of private property, but it was important as it related to where God had promised inheritances. And the old adage goes, those who don't remember history are destined to repeat it. So holidays root us in tradition. They root us in history. They root us in memorial. And these are valuable things though never at the expense of truth and never at the expense of sound doctrine. And that's what we are here to think through today. Is it okay? Is it valid? Can we? Is the observance of the historical Christian holidays a compromise, a mark of compromise, or is it something that we need to reject, or is it something that we can do in good conscience? Now, if it is something that we need to reject, what are we going to do instead? in order to help us and the generations that follow remember with rejoicing those things that are essential to our faith. And the next thing I'd like this to keep in mind, as we regard various aspects of Christmas and Lent and Easter today, it seems clear from a basic point of view that paganism, in a sense, came first. But I'd like to give you a bit of perspective. Even if you were to conclude that, well, paganism came before the Christian analog to that thing. I'd like to give you a little bit of thought perspective on that idea. Satan is a deceitful foe. And he knows the same thing that we have observed throughout history. That the best lies are those that come closest to the truth. These are powerful because they can catch the well-meaning but undiscerning in their net. Not just the rebellious. The rebellious are going to be caught no matter but the, it's the, the well-meaning but undiscerning that are the ones that get caught when error comes as close as possible to truth, uses the same language but changes the definitions, uses the same observances but changes the intent or the meaning. 
And we know that to be true. Now, as we go back to the concept of the mother-child cult, we can trace its roots, the roots of the proclamation of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son who is the express image of the father. We can trace that all the way back to Babel. And as we go back to that idea, going all the way back to Babel, to the undiscerning eye, we would say, well, if we follow the revelation of these events in Scripture, the historian would say that the pagan ritual, the pagan tradition of the mother-child cult, the pagan tradition of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son, and that son being the express image of his father and being the son of God, well, that goes well before Isaiah promised in Isaiah 7 that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. So from an undiscerning perspective, we could say, well, all Christianity is actually doing is mimicking a well-established pagan trope, a well-established pagan ritual. After all, the mother-child cult predates Jesus. And the first promise we have on record is not until Isaiah. And this leads us to a unique chicken and an egg problem as it relates to the division of pagan beliefs and Christian beliefs. Which came from, well, historically, materially, empirically, we'd say the mother-child cult came well before Jesus. Except that we understand that God's plan has been in place since time immemorial. That Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We place evidence then by faith that in these facts... And we see all of the other imposters as cheap copies of the same fundamental principle. You say, but what do you mean? They came first. Yes, they came first. How is that possible? Well, because Satan is a father of lies. Now, if you were Satan and you were looking to tear down what God was going to do in history, how would you do it? Would you not create a false system? Would you not create a false expectation? Would it not conform as closely to the true as possible with, this, with, with, with rare, unique exceptions that would divert it from the reality of its truth? So I caution you about rejecting things wholesale on the basis of historical similarities to paganism. Yes, of course, elements of paganism are going to look like biblical truth. This is how false religions gain converts. They find people that love the truth, they twist the truth slightly, and they lead those people who will fall for it into a rabbit hole of error. To this end, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, I encourage you to spend far more time assessing any doctrinal statement, any observance, or any tradition on the merits of what it is today than necessarily on the merits of what it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. Because the farther you go back in history the more difficult it is to discern which came first, what copied what, why it was there to begin with, whether or not Satan was preparing, brought in something years before God would bring it to fruition in history as a means by which to muddy what God was attempting to do in history. But we can know this. What does the observance mean today? In this time, in this culture, in this church, in my conscience, and does it align itself with sound doctrine? One final thing before we get into that doctrine. Remember that things change, but God does not. Anytime we evaluate anything, it is important that we do so on the firm foundation of God's word, of God's character, of God's intent. 
Cultures and societies change all the time. Words change their meaning. So that a word I could say without consequence 20 years ago is a word today that would be egregious to say. It was not all that long ago that to have a piano in the church was considered heresy. And now here we are and we are old-fashioned because we have a piano in the church. Right? Things change. Battles of previous generations. Battles upon which Christians held the line implicitly are battles which simply don't matter anymore. And not because we have compromised, but because time, circumstance, even technology has made those battles uh, obsolete or unnecessary. If you've ever met a pastor who led a conservative church during the sexual revolution and the hippie movement of the 60s, 70s, you might have walked away wondering about the things which he saw in society that he regarded as important. Things which were issues of separation for the day that had a valid reason in that day, but which aren't battles anymore. Songs which never would have been sung in churches in their day because the words were put to common bar tunes, played on common bar instruments such as the piano, have since become favorites of the church as these associations have passed away. And, in, and, and that doesn't mean that they were wrong in their day any more than it means we're wrong in our day. It simply means things have changed. And in the midst of all of this, the church has continued to operate with the same foundation. And indeed, the only foundation which we have, which is the Word of God, as led and taught by the Spirit of the living God, which is us. So we try the spirits, as 1 John chapter 4 says, to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And we assess the elements of culture and of society and of right and of wrong based not upon the battles of yesterday, but upon the battles of today. Some battles never change. The deity of Christ is always under attack. That's never going to change. The virgin birth is always under attack. Never going to change. So on and so forth. But some battles are rooted in time, culture, context. And as we navigate those battles, we do so through the Word of God. We take our stand, and then we teach our children not to fight our battles, but to fight the same battle. Not my battle for my day, not to fight the things that I'm fighting today, but to fight for the same principles, to fight for the same Word, to fight for the same truth, adapted for the problems of their day. I don't want to train my children to fight my battles because my battles may not be their battles. And if they're fighting my battles in their day, they're probably actually missing the real battles of their day because they're busy fighting my battles, which aren't really the battlegrounds anymore. I want to equip them to fight the unique adversaries of my day. I want to equip them to fight the adversaries of their day based upon the same foundational principles that we're all fighting for. You might know some dear elderly person who is still fighting the battle of their days rather than the battle of today. You might find some person coming out of World War II who still hates the Germans because of World War II. Well, the Germans of today are not the Germans of World War II. Now, you still want to hate the principles of Nazism, the godless and genocide 
and fascistic principles of Nazism are timeless principles to fight against. But in our day, it is not the Germans, ethnic Germans, who are the ones that are reflecting the principles of Nazism. Unfortunately, they've come a lot closer to home in our day. So we fight the same principles on a new battlefield. I don't want to teach my children to fight my battlefield, but to fight my principles, the true print, the, the word of God's principles, on their battleground. And I hope that makes sense. So we contend for and against the same ideologies and the same principles, the word of God, but they don't always manifest themselves in the same way today as they did in our parents' day or in our grandparents' day. We don't want to be fighting the wrong battles. And when we do fight the wrong battles, that attraction gives Satan the opportunity to engage us on other fronts with each other about things that no longer matter. And we want to be careful that we're not doing that. Okay, let's talk doctrine. We begin with the argument of separation. Knowing what we know about the history of Christmas and of Lent and of Easter, the natural argument that presents itself first is the argument of separation from the world. Now, we label ourselves at Legacy Baptist Church to be fundamentalists uh, as opposed to the more modern label of evangelical. That battle between fundamentalism and evangelicalism was a battle that was fought in the late 1800s and early 1900s, with the key difference between an Evangelical and a fundamentalist as it has carried forward throughout history being drawn along the idea of separation from the world. Now, of course, these battle lines have switched over time. We're talking about a hundred years beyond when this battle was really raging in the church in the way that it was raging then. And yet we still find that as a general rule, uh, the fundamentalist has a significantly uh, deeper mindset for separation from the world as opposed to the evangelical, which is significantly more invested in the idea of you become like the world to win the world. The fundamentalist conviction has been that you reach the world not by becoming like the world or not by accommodating the world, but rather you reach the world by living in distinction from the world, that city on a hill, that lighthouse sort of an idea by which you call people out of their darkness and out of the, their, their way of living through a distinction from the world. And of course, then that can become out of balance. We know about that. You can uh, get so far away from the world that you're no longer at all in the world, at which point you cannot reach the world. But that's been the general distinction, that, 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 that division between evangelicalism and fundamentalism that started in the early 1900s. And so we recognize and we have a strong affinity for this idea of separation and separation from the world. Both Old Testament and New Testament are filled with admonitions that we would separate, particularly from evil. Any number of Old Testament Levitical laws existed specifically to keep the nation from living and worshiping like the pagans that were around them. They were exhorted not to fall into various rituals that looked like the pagans that were around them. This is why the Old Testament outlaws body piercings and tattoos, because those things were associated in their day with paganism. This is why the Old Testament outlaws great images and high places and groves. They were all associated with the pagan worship of their days so that uh, when the Bible says that, that a king did a great job of removing idols from the land, nevertheless he did not get rid of the high places, uh, the idea is that they used those high places to worship the Lord, but that there was still a compromise because the high place was there, and since the high place was there, there was going to be a tendency to drift back into pagan worship because they're worshiping in a manner that is not distinct, not 
separated from the world that is around them. The nation of Israel was called to be separate. And then we also understand that the, that, that the church is called to live in a manner of separation also. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what argument hath the temple, excuse me, agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So Paul calls for believers not to yoke themselves with that which is by unbelief, by unrighteousness, that which we as individuals, uh, that, that we as individuals uh, who are the temple of the living God and the church as the collective body of Christ, which is the pillar and the ground of truth, are not to mix the purity of the doctrines of Christ with the principles of the world that is around us. We see an admonition in James regarding what pure religion is. James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to care for the vulnerable and the, and the weak and the needy, and then second, to keep himself unspotted from the world. The very function of religion in any uh, functional concept as it relates to Christianity, the only reason why we have religious ritual at all is in order that we might be brought to a place where we are caring for those who are needy and so that we would remain in a measure of separation from the perversions of the world that are around us. And as I've said in any number of contexts, as it relates to this idea, we, we, we are careful because when the dirty is with the clean... The dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If I take a clean rag and I throw it into a pile of dirty rags, I'm not going to come down the next day and find a pile of clean rags. I'm going to find a pile of dirty rags with a dirty rag on top of them because it's been touching the dirty rags, so it's going to have to be washed. That does not mean that we don't interact with the world around us, but it does mean that we are careful not to yoke ourselves with the world around us. Not to assimilate ourselves with the principles of darkness. When the darkness of this world calls for compromises with the light of Christ, the only compromise that, uh, that they ever accept is for the light to get darker. Right? When, when, when you hear for calls for compromise, you know what that means. It means the light is going to have to be dimmed. That's what that means. The darkness never gets brighter. The light is being asked to be dimmed. So Paul wrote in his epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21 to 23, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. When we play around with these attempts to merge the world's way of thinking with sound doctrine, we are precipitating the collapse of sound doctrine. We are called to hold fast to sound doctrine in purity. And we are called in any number of passages to separate from those believers who are walking contrary to sound doctrine and are seeking to bring error or compromise into the church. 
So with this general doctrinal principle put in place, the question that we then ask as we filter these principles and history through is, where do things like Christmas and Lent and Easter apply to these principles today? Do these principles mean that we cannot celebrate Christmas or by extension, Lent or Easter? And it depends on what you mean by that, right? Again, let's focus on Christmas a little bit here. As we assess the nature of Christmas, as it's practiced today, we can divide it into three primary parts. The birth of Jesus Christ, decorating stuff, and Santa Claus and the giving of gifts. As we look at each of these elements, we acknowledge that they are not the same. And before we evaluate, evaluate each uh, of these elements individually, let's hit another doctrinal point, a point of fruit bearing. The argument of fruit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, I know there's a lot of information here, stay with me. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, they, by their fruits ye shall know them. So Jesus calls for us to identify false teachers by their fruit, not by what they're saying, but by the fruit of their lives, by acknowledging that corrupt trees don't bring forth good fruit. See, a lot of false teachers, the way they talk sounds very good, but the way they apply what they talk about is absolutely false. But good trees do not bring forth corrupt fruit. And it is within the vein of this teaching that John compels the believer to try the spirits. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I've already quoted it a little bit. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. We have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, take note of this. The standard by which John exhorts us to try the spirits to discern whether a spirit is false or not is this. Does that spirit confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? That spirit is of God. Notice it's not just the idea of a voice. There are lots of false teachers that will read this verse, and so they'll confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But the spirit of their teaching does not. The spirit of their teaching does not confess Christ. The spirit of their teaching does not align with the person and work of Jesus Christ. The spirit of their teaching is false, is antichrist. Deny flesh. They say these things, but then in works they deny him. The spirit of their teaching is false. Now let's think about Christmas by the standard. The focus upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, bears the essence of a right spirit in the church. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's quite literally what we sing about and celebrate. It's a unique time of year, is it not? In which society hears the name of Jesus on the radio, sees it in banners, nativities, where speaking Jesus openly is readily accepted where you can put verses up and nativities up and hand out tracts and people will accept them in a manner they may not at other times of the year. 
and where it is all connected to the reality that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, that may not have been able to be said 300 years ago. That may not have been able to be said 1,500 years ago. But the question is, can it be said today? In 2023, in the United States of America, in Minnesota. Can we truly call that element of what we would do in this season the cup of the devil? Or is this the cup of Christ? Does it bear the marks of the fruit of sin and of evil and of wrong, or does it bear the marks of Christ? Now, we all know that that part of the season is going away. And not just naturally, but forcibly going away. We all know that Christmas has become paganized and secularized, and so that if you were to go downtown to City Hall, you're probably not going to see many Christian symbols anymore. You're going to see the secular symbols. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So let's consider the other parts of the holiday. Let's consider those secular symbols. Let's consider decorations and Christmas trees and lights and such. As I assess these things, as we assess these things, the question we ask is, is there negative fruit? Is there virtue in these decorations? We have seen some general connections to pagan practices, which should not surprise us because it's human nature to decorate when we celebrate. Evergreens have been used in any number of celebrations for very good reasons, completely separate from paganism. Uh, the reason why is because in the winter, evergreens don't wither, right? So whatever, to whatever degree that concerns us, the question is, is it, a, is it a concern historically or is it a concern contemporaneously? There's an argument that can be made both ways on this. There's an argument that can be made that the focus of the church and celebration is fundamentally different and our decoration should follow suit. But in many ways, that's not necessarily controversial. When you drive past a lit home, there are certain homes which are noticeably more Christ-focused in, de in decoration. My family has done a thing over the years. You know, we decide whether or not we decorate in certain ways. And one of the things we do is we've decided, yeah, let's go ahead and put up a, a tree. We'll talk more about that tree in a minute. But on the actual tree itself, that's forefront in our home, we only put Christian symbolism. And any of the more secular ornaments that you get, you know, you have little bears on sleighs and whatever else, um, we'll hang those somewhere else in the house. So we've chosen to separate the sacred and the secular. Lots of different ways. Other people say, nope, not going to bring a tree into the house. Other people say, well, we're just going to do it this way. Associations aren't really, no one's going to walk into your house and see, see an, an, an ornament with a, a bear riding a sleigh and think that you're, you know, worshiping Saturnalia or something, right? So we Christians have done this in any number of ways for any number of years. Christians have always expressed their faith by living lives in a manner that's distinguishing the profane from the holy, even when we're in a profane culture. And let me just say this regarding the Christmas tree itself. This is the one that always flies around Facebook at this time of year, right? They put up Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of a workman with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. 
They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. So there are those who will put up this verse and they'll say, See, Jeremiah warned against the Christmas tree. You cut down a tree and you deck it with silver and with gold and you hang it to the wall. That's not what this is talking about. Have you ever heard anybody think a Christmas tree could speak or could walk? The only reason why he would compare it to not speaking is because they fashioned it as a mouth. What they did is they would cut down a tree and they'd fashion it into the shape of something and then they'd cover it with silver or they'd cover it with gold and then they'd worship it. The only reason why they say, he says it can't walk is because they'd fashion it with feet. But see, they have to tack it to something because it's not going to stand on its own, certainly not going to walk anywhere because it's not real. This is talking about idolatry. This is not talking about Christmas. Okay? When we look at the scriptures and we see what evergreen trees are relatively spoken of, this is not an anti-Christmas tree passage. That's just like Bible interpretation 101, okay? However, evergreens do come up a lot in the scriptures, don't they? Now, they're, they're not called evergreens. They're called the cedars of Lebanon. Evergreen trees which were used all the time, not just as grand, to make grand structures because they were good wood, strong wood, but how often does God compare himself and his people to the cedars of Lebanon? Because of their strength, because of their vitality. When God likens the nation to a cedar or a pine or a fir or to shittim wood, the one thing that all of they ha those have in common is that they're all evergreens. To this end, God declaring in various times and various ways his faithfulness and his prosperity, he is going to use the symbol symbology of the evergreen because the evergreen is the tree that does not wither. And so, you see that floating around, and, you know, I understand it, but that's not what the Bible's saying. Now, I say all of this, please don't understand my, misunderstand my intentions. I'm not advocating for you to put up a Christmas tree here. I'm simply ab advocating for us to understand biblical truth and to apply it properly to our lives. And as I study passages and their meaning, I certainly don't see all of the holidays fall within the context of biblical separation issues, nor do I see the presence of an evergreen as anything that's openly associating ourselves or our homes with anything that's clearly pagan, necessarily. Necessarily. If you're shaping your evergreen into devil horns, well, you probably have a problem. Don't do that. Even as we'll talk about next, if you turn your evergreen into a giant Santa Claus, I would take pause but just having an evergreen in your home is something else altogether. And if the suspicion of historic paganism is sufficient to keep an evergreen out of your home, then that's perfectly fine. But just know that the stand you take is a standard that is designed for you and for your conscience, and it is not one that you should necessarily seek to impose upon all of your Christian neighbors. So we've talked about Jesus regarding the spirit of the holiday. We've talked about decorations of which application will determine their alignment with doctrine. Finally, let's talk about that element that is most secular. I meant to give the, the uh, warning here that if you have children that are, are still in the Santa Claus era and that's something that you hold to. I've never had that, but if, if you do, um, it'd be a good time to leave. Uh, <laughs> 
Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Santa Claus was derived in from the stories of a Christian in the fourth century named Nicholas of Myra. Aside from all of the superstition in the Roman Catholic Church that was laid to his charge, we know this man to have been a man of tremendous generosity. Tradition states that he saved three poor girls in the city from being forced into and sold into prostitution by dropping sacks of gold coins through a window of their house each night for three nights in order that their father would be able to afford to pay a dowry for them to be able to marry honorably. He is listed as a bishop who attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Little else is known about him, of which does not border on the absurd. Of course, you know how it goes with Catholic mythology, he probably walked on water and all sorts of things, but none of that is, is, is within the scope of, of historic, that's just mythology. Nicholas was made a saint of the Roman church, and because the church gave him a feast day on December 6th, his name was thus naturally linked to Christmas, particularly as people sought to put a spin on Christmas that was more religious after you know, its former pagan associations. This is one of the unique areas of Christmas, however, that does not any longer bear positive fruit. For a long time, my children only knew Santa by the name Nicholas, right? And we tried to, you, you keep that for as long as you can. Who's that? Oh, that's Nicholas. Let's talk about Nicholas. And you go back to Nicholas Amira. But it, eventually it breaks down. It has to break down. No one knows today about Nicholas Amira. The concept has been entirely superseded by Santa Claus. And the fruit of the philosophy of Santa Claus is, in fact, pagan, right? And unrighteous to the core. Let me explain. The concept of Santa Claus is that there is a timeless, supernatural being that judges the, and rewards us based upon our actions, right? He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, and he is more or less, we would assume, omnipotent, and he judges us based upon whether or not we've been good or whether or not we've been bad. This is used as a manipulation tactic, right? To scare children into doing or not doing things on the basis of their fear that they will displease this timeless supernatural being. This bears no distinction from the God of the Catholic Church because the Church's historic position on God is that he is more or less just that. But it does bear a distinction to the God of the Bible. Within the pagan idea, if I do good, then I will get gifts. If I do bad, I will get coal. So I'd better be a moral person, and I can even manipulate the great Santa in the sky to giving me the things that I want through my actions and inactions. Now, what do we know about the God of the Bible? We know that he blesses obedience, and he does um, judge disobedience, even among his followers, right? We know that there's coming a day where we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will answer for that which we've done in our bodies, whether it be good or whether it be evil. But the conflating of Santa with this omnipotent, omniscient being actually puts into the minds of people, it introduces children to a being who is godlike in character, but whose assessment of them is entirely based upon works. This is confusing because their first true introduction to deity in any real way. I mean, they get the flannel graph on a Sunday school morning and whatnot, but the first true introduction to deity in a real and, and, and appreciable way in their lives is a deity who is like the pagan gods, who will reward you 
if you do what they want and who will punish you if they don't do what, what they want. And so you have to earn your favor with them. And while we understand, it's all make-believe, it's a story, yada, yada, children are impressionable. And to, connect their, to make their first connection to a, to a God-like being to be the exact thing that is, to be anti-grace is dangerous and is pagan. The conflating of Santa with God that can so easily happen in this time of year causes people to have an entirely perverse picture of who God is and of salvation by grace through faith completely apart from merit which he has offered. God's greatest gift, Jesus Christ, was not a Christmas gift from Santa given to the world to reward its merit. God's greatest gift, Jesus Christ, was a gift given to the world explicitly because of our demerit. Our inability to be good enough. And to that end, the fact that the season encourages parents to prop up this deity... I think is dangerous. Along with Santa, there's another aspect of the holidays that bears quite negative fruit, and that's the aspect of materialism, right? Now, I need to be careful on this point because giving of gifts has historically been a common method of celebrating. And the concept is not foreign to scriptures, where gift giving is a form of celebration and of joy is found throughout. In fact, around this time of year, we focus upon the reality that Jesus Christ himself is that ultimate gift that was given to man, though we do, did not deserve it and could not earn it, and that Jesus, when he was on the cross, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, led captivity captive and gave good gifts to men. But there is a big difference between giving and receiving, isn't there? And there's a big difference between a spirit of celebration and a spirit of covetousness, of lust, and of envy, and of grief. A spirit of giving bears the fruit of Christ. Spirit of covetousness, lust, envy, and greed bears the fruit of darkness. So we find ourselves in a very interesting place culturally. We find ourselves in a culture where scores of families come out of the holiday season overweight, in debt, and racked with stress. People take out loans, they buy gifts on layaway, they rack up huge credit card debt in order to make Christmas special. And it's in the name of giving because they're buying gifts, but it bears the fruit of everything that the Bible says to avoid, right? Lust, envy, debate, debt, covetousness, greed. And you say, well, pastor, right, but, you know, giving is also a generosity thing. We're getting there, so hang on here. The Christian battle against materialism, the drive to want stuff, the conviction that things are sufficient to make you happy, this is a... These, these, these are unbiblical ideas, right? The things of the world can produce a temporary feeling of contentment and of happiness, which very quickly gives way to discontent and the itch to have something more, to have something different. The next big thing. Things offer a very small burst of satisfaction, like when you eat a piece of candy, but then it has no substance, so your hunger will come back very quickly. And you've seen this in, the, in a child. You've seen it in yourself. Perhaps when you were a child. You had in your mind, if I could only get that one gift, that one thing, that one last thing, if mom and dad would only get that one thing for me, I'll never ask for anything again. I'll finally be happy. 
And then you get it, and then three weeks later, you're bored, and you're waiting until the next holiday where you can ask for the next thing that you can't do without, but that you'll never want anything else if only you can have that thing. And the cycle just continues, right? It just repeats. You felt the same pull in your own heart, the same excuses, the same justifications. Maybe it isn't things. For some people, it's things. For others, it's others, right? Maybe it's things. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a career. Maybe time within it. I'm just going to work X number of hours until I can get this much in the bank and then I can slow down and retire. Then I can invest in my family. But I have to push and push and push until I can get to that point. And then when you get to that point, there's always another point, right? There's always another point. There's always another thing to push for. There's always another thing to reach for. There's always another reason to, 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 to keep doing. And so here we come to one that's uniquely conflicted. We might say this about decorations and such as well, where we say, well, there's, a, there's a, a, a way to apply it and there's a way that's not, and we have to thread that needle. And we have to thread that needle in the holidays with giving and receiving. Why? Well, because giving is a blessed attribute. Acts chapter 5, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says that the purpose that we labor is so that we may have so that we may have to give to him that needeth. Materialism is a perversion, but it's a perversion which should not strip from us a season where, the privilege, where we are privileged to focus upon a virtue. Unbelieving culture is going to make it about getting, about debt and covetousness and greed and lust. They're unbelievers. That's what they're going to do. But I don't have to throw away the opportunity to show my children what it means to give because everyone else is focusing on what it means to get. I don't have to throw away the natural and proper reflection of celebration through giving just because it means I have to be given something. Receiving a gift in a proper light, properly receiving a gift is an extremely humbling process, isn't it? Like a true gift. Not, not an exchange, not I'm giving you, you're giving me, not a, not, a, not a purchase, but truly receiving a gift is humbling. My children need to experience that. They need to know that. We live in a culture that sees gifts and handouts as entitlements. If I don't get gifts at Christmas, I've been cheated. If I don't get what's coming to me, I've been cheated. I'm entitled to it. No one owes me anything. But giving, giving's a good thing. Receiving with humility, it's a good thing. So that brings us to the question, are the negative fruits of Santa and materialism enough to stay away from the holiday altogether? Well, maybe, or maybe not. Like with many areas of culture within the past decade, the floodgates have opened to evil in a way that we've not seen since the sexual revolution. And around this time of year, the primary target of darkness has been Christmas. Why? Why is darkness targeting Christmas? Because Christmas still bears some light. And as long as Christmas bears some light, as long as the darkness of the world hates this holiday and is actively seeking to destroy it, seems to me that maybe there's something of value in it. Now, the, um, the, the appearance of the darkness of this world is prevailing in this sense. Uh, barring some revival, which is always a possibility, 
Christmas might be stripped from all of its fruit eventually. And there may come a time in 10 years, five years, next year, where I can't preach this message anymore in the same way. Where we have to say, you know what, it's time to say that there's no fruit here any longer. But I, I don't think that that's today. For today, seeing the darkness that in, in, is in the world, hating this, this celebration so deeply, I have a hard time arguing that we ought to completely separate ourselves from it. Can a Christian successfully focus upon the birth of Jesus Christ without any crossover into that which bears corrupt fruit? Absolutely. Christians have done it for generations. And at this point in culture, would anyone see you celebrating Christmas and say, oh, paganism? No, not necessarily. Except for those Christians who have done all the study and thus reject the holidays, right? Uh, to this point, it may be understood that I have been advocating to keep Christmas, but really I'm not. Throughout the course of what I have been preaching, my desire is not to advocate for keeping Christmas or not keeping Christmas. The desire of my entire time in the Word is advocating for the position that celebrating Christmas from a Christian perspective is still of such character, reputation, and fruit in this culture that it does not necessarily offend the doctrinal principles of explicit separation from the darkness of this world in the same manner of the other things of which we would speak. When we speak of separation from this world in various aspects of what separation is, whether that be entertainment, uh, various separation from certain types of music or movies or, or, or video games or whatever it might be, or, or separation from the substances which are, are not conducive to us being what we ought to be for Christ, such as alcohol or drugs or, or, or even elements of appearance as it relates to rebellion and decency and modesty, uh, to the things that we have talked about today regarding Santa Claus or, 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 or the, 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 the pagan elements of holidays. In each of these cases, we can point to the fruit of those pagan elements and we can say that they are fundamentally contradicting the efforts of the Spirit of God to work Christ in God's people. And therefore, we should be careful the degree to which we have any part in them. And my point today is not to advocate to you that you ought to celebrate Christmas or Lent or, 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 or Resurrection necessarily, or that you ought not to, but rather that my desire is that you have all of the information necessary to make a decision and to give you some point, counterpoint arguments to help you see both sides of the issue at hand, to make you balanced in this perspective in order that you can do what is right for you, and then you can also perhaps understand why the church has chosen to go in the directions that we have. That my own thoughts are made somewhat transparent in this is by design, because as the shepherd of this flock, one would need to know as they sit here why it is that we celebrate, though in a very restrained manner, the things that we choose to or not to celebrate as it would relate to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And for you to know that we have not made these decisions in ignorance. In fact, no decision in this church is really made without reasons. And all of this said then, I want to make this one final point that relates to the various aspects of celebrating what we can say celebrating Christmas. We can talk about celebrating Easter. We can talk about celebrating Lent. But the idea of holidays. And that's the argument of Christian liberty. 
We've spoken any number of times and in any number of ways about Christian liberty at Legacy Baptist Church. Unfortunately, we don't have the time today to get fully into the topic, but my teaching culminates upon this point because I do firmly believe that the Christian holidays, at least as they exist in culture right now, maybe not as they existed 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago, but as it exists right now, in culture right now, does fit squarely in the realm of this area of Christian liberty. In the early church, the controversy was about uh, that the controversy surrounding which Christian liberty is most regularly spoken of, as Paul speaks to the idea, was about eating meat offered unto idols, or even eating, even eating meat at all. Some, the Bible tells us, refuse to eat meat at all on biblical grounds. What those grounds were, we don't exactly know. If we are speculating what those grounds might be, we might imagine that they're the same grounds that we find uh, in various aspects of Christianity today as to why they would choose not to eat meat. Namely, that they look into the Bible and they say, well, prior to Noah's flood, there was no meat. Right? And in that there was no meat prior to Noah's flood, then if we are going back to God's original design, then wouldn't we go back to a pre-flood design where there is no meat? Uh, it's often, uh, I've often seen this not just in that argument of the pre-flood design, but also um, the preachers that I've heard talk through this idea um, would advocate for it, and they, they call it the Daniel plan, right? That when Daniel was advocating um, for uh, himself and for his companions in Babylon, he said, we do not want to eat the portion of the king's meat. And so they only had pulse and water and they were stronger and more healthy than the others. And of course, that's not what the text was talking about. Uh, God was divinely blessing those men with health, specifically because they did not want to defile themselves with meat that was not clean. It was not about whether or not you eat meat or don't eat meat, but of course, that's um, that's, that's how it's sometimes taken. But anyway, there was this group of people uh, in, in Paul's day, as he was writing to the Romans, who did not eat meat. Others were willing to eat meat, but they did not want to eat meat that had been dedicate, dedicated to idols, the gods of the cities, which might mean it was difficult for them to find this meat because the sellers would dedicate this meat uh, for good luck before they had sold it. Others were willing to eat meat, even that sacrifice to idols, because on the authority of God's word, on the authority of the apostles, as the apostles articulated these things, they understood that idols were nothing, nothing but stone or wood or metal. So who cares? As long as they ate with thanksgiving unto the Lord. So Paul would write about this in numerous places. One of those places is, as I said, Romans chapter 14. And in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 10, this is what we read. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let, him, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not and giveth God thanks. 
For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul lays down some principles here about Christian liberty specifically. In 1 Corinthians chapters, verse, chapters 8 and 10, he speaks more to the point of meat offered to idols and such. But here Paul says that there are some in the church that believe that they may eat all things. Others that they may only eat herbs or only eat plants, not eat meat. And then Paul said, don't let the one who eats all things despise the one who won't eat. And don't let the one who won't eat judge the one that does. So the idea would be that the one who eats all things looks at the one who, who doesn't eat meat, who only eats herbs, and despises him, belittles him, thinks little of him, thinks this is a person who doesn't understand the scriptures properly. This is a person who, who, who has never who, who has not related himself properly to our liberty. And so he, he belittles him. He thinks little of him. He despises him is the word there. And then on the other end, you have the person who won't eat meat. And he says, well, this guy just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand going all the way back to Noah's day. It was not until Noah's day that God gave man meat. Or how, how does he not have enough faith to do the same thing that Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael did in their day? And reject meat, reject the meat of, of, of the king and, and only eat the, the pulse in the water. And so he judges the man who eats. Recognize that we have the right to regard differences in the manner and life of worship. As long as those things don't offend the deeper principles of God's word. That if a man eats meat as unto the Lord, well, then God bless him. And if a man doesn't eat meat as unto the Lord, well, God bless him too. But such matters should not be things which foster disunity among the brethren. Now, where this principle breaks down to, uh, is the degree to which anyone regards these matters as Christian liberty issues, right? This is, this is where the problem comes in. The problem doesn't come in with any of us being able to understand that we have liberty. The problem comes in in agreeing where our liberties are. One man says, well, this is Christian liberty. It's Christian liberty whether or not he eats meat or not. And another says, no, this is not a Christian liberty issue. This is a sin issue. I can go to chapter and verse and show you where Daniel rejected eating meat, right? That's, that, that, that is just gospel truth, brother. And if we can't even agree on whether or not this is a Christian liberty issue, well, that's how these controversies end in splits and in anger and in bad blood and those sorts of things. But what Paul says here is this. If a man has valid biblical reasons why he believes in good conscience before the Lord that he can do what he is doing before God. And if the word of God is not being explicitly defended as we approach it honestly, then I can trust this. If that man says he loves the Lord and he is approaching in humility the word of God and he has come to a conclusion as it relates to the word of God and as it relates to where he stands before God, even if I think he's wrong, that's, for, that's between him and God. 
To his own master, he'll rise and fall. And that master is not me. That master is not me. Now, that being said, of course, there is a limit. Romans chapter 14, continuing in verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So there, there is this idea that every man will give an account of himself to God. I will rise and fall before my own master. So that this idea of despising and judging one another. And notice here, he didn't just talk about eating meat or eating herbs. He said regarding a day and regarding not a day. If I want to regard a certain day of the week as special, which I happen to do, right? Sunday is a unique day. Most of us regard that day as something different. That's the day where we come together and we worship the Lord. We regard some difference in that day. Well, that, that's certainly something that we have the right to do. If another man says, nope, no day is more special than another day, he has every right to believe that as well. Of course, in the context of Romans 14, we would probably be talking more about a Sabbath, right? A Sabbath day of rest. Then continuing in Romans 14. Paul says, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but let us judge this rather. There is a limit to this liberty principle. Let us judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is Unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. There is a law that we are bound by. Whether or not we regard these issues as Christian liberty issues, we are always bound by this law, and that law is the law of love, of charity. Verse 16, let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not, of meat, is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the, that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. That would be weak in faith. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. Again, uh, I've, I've spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the weaker brethren principle and talking about Christian liberty. We're not going to get to all of it this evening. But in the same context, as we read the call to remember that God will be the judge of every man, and so in these matters of conscience, we are not uh, too dogmatic or too harsh or judgmental or, or despising one another. In the same breath, Paul calls upon us as God's people to act charitably toward one another as it relates to our liberties. Paul says, nothing is unclean in itself, but if my brother, if it is unclean to my brother, then to him it is indeed unclean. And he needs to be allowed the liberty of his conscience to avoid those things that trouble him in the Lord, in the Lord. If my brother is grieved by what I'm doing, well, I'm not going to do it around him. I'm not going to force it upon him. I'm not going to rub his face in it. I'm going to show restraint that represents a regard for my brother in Christ. 
so that both sides follow after that which makes peace. Don't destroy the work of God over differences in viewpoints. Differences in chapter and verse doctrine, that demands separation. Things which bear the fruit of unrighteousness, that demands separation. We've already talked about that. But for differences in viewpoints among believers who love the word of God or are desirous to know it and to obey it, but come to different conclusions based upon an honest assessment of the things that they are regarding in God's word, we don't destroy the work of God for those things. We don't foster disunity or dissension or even frustration over these things. Paul then asks this, do you have faith? Speaking to those who regarded their liberties. Those who regard their liberties, those who understand that they have the liberty to eat meat, those who understand that they have the liberty to do these things, do you have that faith? Good. He says, have it to thyself. That's great. Enjoy your liberties. Enjoy them before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which God allows. It's a wonderful thing that you can live in a manner that is free before God. And happy is the man that does not feel guilt in himself for doing something that he, he believes is right before God. God forbid that we would have a church whereby somebody who, who is doing something right in right conscience before God would, would, feel, would walk away feeling, as, feeling guilty that they're doing it because someone else isn't. But he says, have thy faith to thyself. Right? Enjoy it. Enjoy your faith. Enjoy being able to live in your liberties. But that doesn't mean that you have to tear down your brother who doesn't live in them or cause him to stumble or cause him to falter in his own faith in where he is through your liberties. Enjoy your liberties, just not at the expense of your brother in Christ. And that's the limiting principle. So much more could be said, but let's go to just one more passage then we'll wrap it up. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 22. It's another long passage. The Bible says this. Ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you, of your reward in a voluntary humility, worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with, the, with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, 
after the commandments and doctrine of men. So these verses have been used many times in many different contexts. It, as we talk about the idea of Christian holidays and specifically the idea of observing Christmas, one could say, see, let no man judge you. But we see in this direct context, the idea is this. Paul was writing to a group of people who actually were being judged. They were being judged because they were not observing, particularly in this case, the Jewish days, the Jewish holidays. And Paul makes it quite clear that holidays, like any other day, feast, meat, drink, new moons, that these bear the shadow of things in the heavenly. As a matter of fact, Paul says, most interestingly, he says that these are a shadow of things to come. That the feasts and the new moons and the Sabbaths are a shadow, they're prophetic, they're a shadow of something that is yet to come. That's a topic for another day. But we are of Christ. But they are, at this time, simply the rudiments of this world. Whether or not I observe them in good conscience ought to hold no sway over my spiritual life. And if they do hold sway, either in the keeping of them or not keeping of them, then I'm out of balance. Paul warns against false religious doctrines, against the worshiping of angels, against voluntary humility, speaking those things which are bigger than them. And that, that is where things get dangerous. When the ritualistic observances of any particular group of people are elevated above God himself and above his word. They, they step into things of which we, we know not, and they, they, they tread into areas that are not ours to tread into. You know, we meet on Sunday by tradition. We could meet on a Thursday. Only a lot of people are pretty busy on Thursdays. And so, uh, in that it's a work day, it would not be an ideal day for us to choose to meet. Our society has given us a day off. Uh, we have the weekend. We choose one of those days of the weekend and we come together. That's wonderful. Next week, our society gives us a day off to celebrate Christ on December 25th. We could do it on June 3rd. That'd be fine too. Only not too many people could come every year because that's not a special day in our society. It'd be nice if the day that was chosen, if as we walk through all of the various aspects of history, maybe it would be nice if the day was not uh, so connected to various other uh, secular ideas. But that doesn't mean we can't worship, it on, worship on that day. Either way, it's all just temporary and it will all perish with the using. And so we want to be careful not to make something a point of contention among the brethren that need not be. And so what I've taken to do today is I've taken to try to orient our minds to, at this Christmas season, the various aspects of Christian holidays. And this final piece of the puzzle was this idea of Christian liberty. That as Paul calls us to not fret over whether or not we do or do not regard a day as, well, as long as we regard it to the Lord, as Paul exhorts in Colossians, that no man judge in the keeping of a holy day or of a Sabbath or of a new moon or of a feast. We acknowledge that this is an area whereby there is latitude, grace, opportunity. And then as we walk through all of the other various aspects of, of particularly Christmas as we think through it, we recognize that there are certain things that, that, that bear fine fruit 
that the actual spirit, if we judge the spirits of the holiday, can be negative if we allow the various aspects of secularism or paganism to find their way in, or can be quite sacred. And my objective today was to reveal to God's people that the origin of the Christian holidays, with a specific focus on Christmas as we step into that season, indeed, I wish I could have spent more time than the others, but oh well, the intent was to show you the problems, the history, give you some perspective, show you the general doctrines that may be touched by the controversy, and then give you some thoughts with regard to how you can balance these things properly. It was not my intention and is not my intention to dissuade or persuade you in a particular direction, except that we would be persuaded to use the Word of God properly and to apply it distinctly. At Legacy Baptist Church, we have always taken a tempered approach to various holidays. You'll not regularly find the great trappings of Christmas in our sanctuary. We don't put up churches and or, uh, Christmas trees and ornaments and the like. We have some festive flowers that we put up at the time of year. We sing the hymns that are, are reflective of our Savior's birth, careful to make sure that the songs that are sung are not trite or uh, deeply questionable in doctrinal distinction, while also recognizing poetic license for things such as uh, three wise men, even though we know that uh, three was not necessarily the right number there, and uh, acknowledging uh, Bethlehem uh, as, as a source not just of Jesus' birth, but uh, maybe of, of the wise men's travels, although I would disagree with the assessment of time as it relates to where Jesus was by the time the wise men made it to him. I believe he was in Nazareth by that time. So we recognize various aspects there and disagreements and poetic license and the like. We spend Christmas Eve rejoicing together and we celebrate the day that the Word of God was made flesh, and in these things there is no carnal fruit. My prayer is that this sermon would help you in your thinking on the issue, whichever way you come down on it, and that God's grace uh, in this fellowship uh, would thus maintain a unity of spirit in the bond of peace, that we would not destroy the work of God for these things of which Christ has given us liberty. And not just in this particular body as it relates to the unity of this body, but that we would not be a part of the problem as it relates to causing people to stumble in their faith beyond these doors as well. But that we would be a body that is actively seeking the will of the Lord in spite of differences and that working of our faith. That we would be a body that is tempered and careful not to reject the, uh, the, the use of all memorials or, or the, the keeping of all memorials and holidays simply because we can find some sort of pagan root to whatever it is we're looking into while simultaneously not allowing the various aspects of, of the secular to encroach upon the sacred. And so I guess what I hope for is that we would be a balanced people and that through that balance we might uh, simply act and deport ourselves in a manner that reflects well the word of God, not just one to another, but to the world that is around us. And may it be so. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.